This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora, I'm William Ray. And I'm Lee Madame McLaughlin. No my Hari Mai Kite Aotearoa History Show. Okay, last episode was a bit grim, lots of death and destruction and disease. But now the First World War has ended, the influenza pandemic is over, and it's time to talk about mm, the Great Depression. Yay. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. The early 1920s weren't easy years for New Zealanders. The country was reeling in the aftermath of both the First World War and the influenza pandemic. Hundreds of veterans were still dying from a combination of old wounds, the delayed effects of poison gas and, in some cases, suicide. But there were some reasons to be optimistic. New Zealand's economy had grown thanks to the war and the government was funding all kinds of new stuff. The first major hydroelectric dams were built and the main trunk railway lines were completed. The government set up institutions such as Massey Agricultural College, now known as Massey University, to investigate new agricultural technologies like tractors, milking machines and artificial fertilisers. Our cultural life was also blossoming and the New Zealand way of life was slowly growing more distinct. New Zealand sent its first national team to the Olympics in 1920 and Catherine Mansfield became the first New Zealand author to achieve international acclaim before her premature death in 1923. There was also a dramatic increase in secondary education and in home ownership, plus the introduction of the world's first fully funded family benefit payment. Rugby had grown to become the national game for Māori and Pākehā men. In 1924, the All Blacks had their most successful overseas tour of all time. They returned undefeated with 32 victories, winning their team the nickname the Invincibles. And if you weren't into sport, there was lots of other cool new stuff too, like electric lights, cars, cinemas, gramophones and radios. These were some of Aotearoa's most prosperous years. But the roots of another disaster were lurking just beneath the surface. Our economy still totally relied on agricultural exports to the UK. It's the same problem New Zealand faced in the long depression of the 1880s. Any time the UK market started to shrink, 
the gears of our economy seized up. Even a small drop in export prices could be a big problem. Between 1928 and 1934, the prices didn't just drop. They crashed down 45%. This was the Great Depression. It was kicked off by a stock market panic on Wall Street in New York. It quickly spiralled into a global economic recession. The effect in New Zealand was devastating. At least 80,000 men ended up unemployed, roughly 30% of our male workforce. The government responded by introducing relief payments for the unemployed, but to get that money, people had to take part in public work programmes, digging ditches, weeding, building roads and fences. At first, these schemes were set up locally in towns and cities, but as the crisis dragged on, the government set up rural work camps for unemployed men. And the conditions in those camps could be pretty rough. Like, here's a description from the Auckland Weekly News. The floors of the tent are earthen, uncovered by boarding, and many of them very dampened by rain soakage. Men bathe in the drains, wash in a horse trough. Nearly always they are ankle-deep and knee-deep in water, and often waist-deep. The lives of women in the Great Depression could be even more difficult. Back in the 1930s, there were strong social taboos against married women working, and single women weren't paid nearly as much as men. Single mums often had to beg or scrounge to feed their kids. And on top of that, inspectors would come to check their houses and cut their relief payments if they weren't spotlessly clean. Pioneering female politicians emerged in the Depression. One was Elizabeth McCombs, who became New Zealand's first ever female MP in 1933. In her maiden speech to Parliament, she called on politicians to recognise the suffering of women. The official figures for unemployment register 80,000 unemployed, These figures do not include women. If we include women and youths, we find the number is practically double. As if the economic crisis of the 30s wasn't bad enough, Aotearoa also experienced its deadliest natural disaster in modern history. On February 3rd, 1931, a massive earthquake ripped through Hawke's Bay. It sparked fires which swept through central Napier. All up, 256 people were killed and tens of thousands were left without access to food or water. The earthquake was a major distraction for the people and the government. It put even more strain on public finances and services. But the depression didn't let up, and a year after the earthquake, some people were reaching the breaking point. Autumn of 1932 was known as the Angry Autumn, as protesters rallied in our major cities. In Auckland, a full-on riot broke out in Queen Street. Unemployed workers smashed windows and looted shops. The anger at hunger was particularly strong. It seemed ridiculous that so many people were going hungry in a country which was literally covered in farms. In 1935, 12 Auckland clergymen sent this petition to the government. 
widespread malnutrition in a primary producing country is nothing short of a national scandal. Unspeakable suffering is endured by thousands of honest and respectable citizens who should not be placed in this humiliating position. But it wasn't just anger. There was also a sense of profound sadness. Here's a quote from one man who lived through those years. The depression was greyness. It's the only way that I can describe a sort of hopelessness that seemed to spread around among people who, in earlier parts of their lives, had been accustomed to security. It was the result of a discovery, a shock really, a discovery that life was not secure anymore. In many countries, the frustrations of the Great Depression contributed to the rise of fascists. These people won support through massive state-sponsored infrastructure programs, which created jobs for unemployed workers. But they also promoted an extreme kind of nationalism based on racial purity, a strong military service and authoritarian leadership. The most famous fascists were Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party and Benito Mussolini in Italy. But there were also significant fascist movements in many other countries, such as France, Britain, the USA. Even here in Aotearoa, there were a few fascist-leaning groups, but they never took root in the 1930s. Instead, we saw this era of discontent spark the rise of the New Zealand Labour Party. Labour was founded by a coalition of socialist movements in 1916. To begin with, this party had some very radical policies. For example, they proposed nationalising all farmland. Several Labour members were jailed for opposing conscription during the First World War. Future Prime Minister Peter Fraser spent a full year in prison. But even with those controversial policies, Labour managed to win about 25% of the vote in the 1920s. Then, as the Great Depression started to bite, Labour's support crept upwards. The real turning point came after a guy called Michael Joseph Savage became the leader of the party in 1933. Michael Joseph Savage helped change the image of the Labour Party. It was still a radical movement for its time, but Savage sanded down some of its rough edges. He talked about socialism as applied Christianity, and the party abandoned some of its more extreme policies. The historian Michael King puts it like this in his History of New Zealand. Labour no longer planned to smash capitalism, as it had wanted to do two decades earlier. Like the electorate at large, it wanted to make capitalism work better. In particular, it wanted to make sure that in a country with the rich food resources of New Zealand, nobody would have to go hungry or without work, education or health care. After years of scraping and struggling, this was exactly the message Kiwi voters were looking for. Labour won a landslide victory in the 1935 election. Its share of seats in Parliament more than doubled. Almost immediately, the economy started to bounce back. Lots of Kiwis felt that Labour had saved New Zealand from the Great Depression. Many families hung pictures of Michael Joseph Savage on the walls of their houses. But the end of the Great Depression didn't really have all that much to do with Labour. Basically, Labour got lucky. They happened to take power just as the international economy was improving. Plus, they benefited from the previous government's decision to slash spending and set up the Reserve Bank. So when Labour came to power, they had three big things in their favour. A recovering global economy, more freedom to borrow money, and a gigantic majority in Parliament. 
So what they did over the next four years was launch a massive effort to lift the standard of living for working class Kiwis. The most revolutionary policy was the 1938 Social Security Act. This legislation introduced the world's first state-funded national unemployment benefit. In the aftermath of the Great Depression, this was very popular. Labour also introduced universal free health care and education and increased other kinds of welfare payments. The idea was to create a system which supported Kiwis from the cradle to the grave. And mostly, it was very successful. New Zealanders had the highest standard of living in the world. Labour's other major policy was building state houses for working-class Kiwis. Hundreds of people turned up to see the first family move in. By 1939, the government had built 5,000 state houses. The programme then had to go on hold, thanks to the Second World War, but it picked up again after 1945. The Depression was tough on Māori communities. 40% of the male Māori workforce was unemployed, compared to only 12% for Pākehā. Plus, it was much more difficult for Māori to apply for pensions and benefits, and they often got less money than Pākehā. One relief scheme paid a single Māori man nine and a half shillings per week, whereas a Pākehā man got 12 to 17 and a half. The government argued Māori didn't need as much money because most Māori lived rurally and, in theory, could grow their own food. But of course, by this point, Māori had lost most of their productive farmland, so that idea was questionable. There were some improvements for Māori in the 20s and 30s. The population had started to rise after the horrific decline of the 19th century, and Māori perspectives started to find their way into the Pākehā-dominated government. One of the most significant Māori politicians was Apirana Ngāta, you remember from last episode. He was Native Affairs Minister for six of those years, and sometimes he served as the Deputy Prime Minister. Along with his young Māori party allies like Māori Pumari, Ngāta convinced the government to help fund the development of Māori farmland. He also helped organise a major investigation of land confiscation and misuse of fisheries. But those investigations didn't stop the pressure for land. The government bought large areas so they could be granted to return servicemen from the First World War. Between 1912 and 1939, Māori land ownership fell from just over 3 million hectares to about 1.4 million. A hundred years after signing the Treaty of Waitangi, Māori now owned less than 6% of Aotearoa. Ngāta and his allies weren't only focused on land. They also worked to preserve aspects of Māori culture. Ngāta got funding for a traditional carving school in Rotorua. He organised the recording of oral history in Waiata. New marae were built and kapahaka competitions were held. Another major Māori political figure in this era was the kingitanga leader, Te Puia Hirangi, who we met last episode. Te Puia was involved in all kinds of efforts to build jobs, farms and marae in the Waikato region. She led a revitalisation of the kingitanga movement. In 1920, kingitanga bought 10 acres of confiscated land on the banks of the Waikato River opposite the town of Naruawahia. They spent years working to clear and drain this land, and fighting legal battles with Pākehā who wanted them removed from the region. 
Te Puya kept up the community's morale. She spent her time teaching histories and legends to rangatahi, jumping up to demonstrate how to perform haka or pukana. She spoke about the shared heritage of Waikato tribes and the importance of their long-term generational struggle to survive. Eventually, the land at Naruawakia became the site of Tūranga Waiwai Marae, and that marae is still the centre of Kingitanga power today. But leaders like Te Puya Hirangi and Apirana faced competition from a new movement in Te Ao Māori. The rise of the Ratana Church. Tahu Pōtiki Wiramuratana was a 45-year-old farmer near Whanganui. He was looking out from his porch, smoking a pipe, when he thought he had a spiritual vision. After the 1918 flu pandemic, he gained a reputation as a faith healer and built up followers for the Ratana Church. By the 1920s, hundreds of people were coming to visit his home, and when he travelled around the country, his sermons drew crowds of thousands. Ratana was both a spiritual and a political leader, but he became increasingly alienated from movements like Kingitanga and the Young Māori Party, which considered his faith sort of too radical. In 1928, as the economic situation started turning for the worse, Ratana fully dedicated himself to politics. He encouraged his followers to run for the four Māori seats in Parliament, with a prophecy that those seats would become the four quarters of his body. Ratana also started secret negotiations with Michael Joseph Savage. In the same election where Labour took power, Ratana's followers won two out of the four Māori seats, and those MPs entered an alliance with the Labour Party. By 1943, Ratana's prophecy was realised. His followers won all four Māori electorate seats. The Labour-Ratana alliance won some significant victories for Māori. Labour equalised Māori access to welfare and pensions. Their new healthcare system also led to big long-term improvements. This involved some really basic steps like making sure Māori homes had water tanks and bathrooms and creating portable isolation huts for treating infectious diseases like tuberculosis. Over the next two decades... Average Māori life expectancy rose by more than 10 years. This improvement fed into a belief among many Pākehā that New Zealand had, quote, the best race relations in the world. Many people believed Māori were being successfully assimilated into Pākehā society. Mm, But those ideas were based on some pretty sweeping assumptions. First, it assumed Māori wanted to be assimilated. Second, it ignored the root causes of Māori inequality, the injustices of colonisation and the Crown's ongoing refusal to honour the treaty. Also, some policies introduced in this era did long-lasting damage to Māori communities, particularly education policies. There had been Māori educational success stories in New Zealand, particularly at Te Oti College, which turned out pupils who went on to become prominent Māori lawyers and doctors like Apirana Ngata and Te Rangihiroa, who was also known as Peter Buck. But the government pushed back against this kind of education. They believed Māori were cut out to be labourers, not professionals. By the 1930s, less than 9% of Māori boys got any kind of secondary education, and that's compared to more than 60% of the total population. Education policy also forbids students from speaking te reo Māori at school. Kids were beaten if they spoke te reo, even if they didn't know how to speak English yet. 
this painful experience, along with urbanisation, intermarriage and the global use of English, led many Māori to decide not to teach their own children te reo Māori. Over the years, the number of fluent speakers collapsed. So, New Zealand went through a lot in the early 20th century. The First World War, the influenza pandemic, the Great Depression. But now it looked like we were starting to turn a corner. The economy was improving, life expectancy was increasing, the government was making a few halting steps towards better race relations. But in 1939, a lot of that stuff had to be put on pause, while Kiwis geared up for the most destructive war in world history. Next episode, the Second World War. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.